Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. We're going to have an excellent couple of hours together today, which I'm very excited about. We're going to be joined by uh, Rob Bluey, the executive uh, editor of The Daily Signal, in just a couple of minutes. And then Dr. Eric Bargerhoff will be on the show. He's writing a book. It's coming out next summer, which we're getting a big sneak preview about things that are in the Bible that you can't believe are in the Bible. And he's going to give us a sample of that. It's going to be awesome. And then... Uh, Pastor Jonathan Parnell's coming in for the full hour, too, with his uh, new book called Mercy for Today, a daily prayer from Psalm 51. We're going to spend all of the second hour in Psalm 51. How cool is that? But today, to get things started, I'm thinking in Ephesians uh, chapter 5, it says, Be very careful, then, how you live. This is verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. There's plenty of evil in the world. We need to not be foolish, but be wise. Take advantage of every opportunity we have. Let's take 60 seconds to bring on Rob. Do you have a story to share? We'd love to hear how Faith Radio impacts your life. Leave us a message on our Faith Line at 877-933-2484. I love Faith Radio and listen to it all the time, and I'm grateful for all that you do. Thank you for all that you do. The Faith Radio Faith Line, a place to share your story. 877-93-FAITH. That's 877-933-2484. 2020 has special things in store. An election, the Olympics, a leap day. And that trip to Europe I've been asking for. Well, some of those things are certain. As you listen to Faith Radio and firmly plant yourself in the truth of God's Word, you'll find hope in the thing there's absolutely no doubt about, the character of God. Connecting Faith to Life, Faith Radio. All right, welcome to the show. It's uh, Tuesday, and you know I love talking to Rob Bluey, the executive editor of The Daily Signal. Always head over to DailySignal.com. Rob, welcome to the show, and welcome to uh, 2020 here at Faith Radio. It's great to be back, Bill. Happy New Year. Thank you so much. Let's get started talking about, uh, A, the the blizzard that's going on in uh, Washington, D.C., Yes, uh, literally and figuratively. Yes. Uh, we we do have uh, our first uh, snowfall of 2020 uh, hitting us here in Washington today. It's uh, quite exciting. The federal government actually closed down at 1 p.m. And uh, and you have people heading home uh, as we speak. So, you know, we, we shall see. Washington tends to shut down in situations like this. But there is so much activity that I, I suspect that Congress and the White House will still be humming uh, because we have uh, obviously a couple of major issues. Uh, the two I words, impeachment and Iran, yeah. on a lot of people's minds. Yeah. Now, I'm just curious because I'm a true Minnesotan. Uh, how many inches of snow causing a government shutdown? I'm just curious. 
Well, I, well, there were zero inches of snow when they <laughs> when they shut down the government. It only started snowing probably within the last okay. half an hour. Right. Uh, but uh, you know, in Washington, what they what they are trying to do, I think, is get everybody home okay. and off the roads before the snow starts. Bill, I can tell you, as an upstate New Yorker, I, I definitely uh, understand the sentiments coming from a Minnesotan. Uh, you know, this morning at nine o'clock, I got a notice from the kids' school saying that they were they were shutting down early and they were you know giving us the advance warning. I don't think I would. Have ever had that situation in uh, in upstate New York? Not but, in uh, years. That is the difference. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, the assassination of uh, General uh, Soleimani, and he is uh, has been in power, uh, kind of in a head head role for twenty one years. Not a good guy, is he? No, not at all. Uh, Responsible for the deaths of over 600 Americans. Uh, Not only has he had a military role as a general, but also a political role. And so, you know, he was a a large figure within the country. It's why I think you see uh, such a large turnout there in Iran, um, uh, you know, treating him as a martyr now. And uh, yes, uh, there is a lot of debate in Washington. Uh, The Democrats uh, seem to be moving forward with a resolution, which uh, you know, I, I, it's going to be relatively, uh, I think, ineffectual because it'll be a partisan effort. I probably uh, end up passing on a party line vote in the U.S. House, and I, I doubt you see much or any movement in the Senate. But uh, it's an effort to to condemn and and uh, criticize President Trump for taking this action. You know, Bill, I, I think though the president, uh, as we've heard from Secretary Pompeo today and Secretary Esper, uh, they've come out with their justifications for why they carried out uh, this. Uh, uh, the strike uh, on the general, and it, it seems justified uh, to those who are uh, understand the rules of engagement. And uh, they, yes, there may be some people in Congress who are offended that they didn't know any earlier. But uh, is that a reason to to necessarily put restrictions on the White House uh, at a time when uh, the American embassy is under attack? I certainly don't think so. Yeah, they certainly have information that we don't have. Us, uh, us U.S. taxpayer, general public types. I mean, I know there was a time when um, bin Laden could have been taken out, but uh, President Clinton decided not to do it. Well, you're absolutely correct. I mean, and there was there were previous uh, opportunities in, in in the case of this particular individual as well, Soleimani. But Bush uh, and Obama administrations decided not to do it. Now, well, look, let's face it. This uh, was a pretty brazen uh, move on Soleimani's part to be right there in Baghdad uh, days after the U.S. embassy came under attack. Uh, you have to remember the U.S. embassy is located within the green zone, which we we talked a lot about the green zone during uh, the height of the Iraq War when it was being constructed. Constructed and this this massive U.S. embassy and the security around it, the fact that uh, the, these individuals were able to penetrate the green zone and, and be right there and physically present in front of the embassy is quite startling, uh, because that's not supposed to happen. Clearly, somebody let uh, let the guard down, and there are some people I think uh, who who clearly want the United States out of Iraq who uh, would would do such a thing, and so there's a lot uh, at stake on on the, on a global level because obviously Iran has been a a subject of much debate uh, going back to the Obama administration when they they put in place uh, the uh, the nuclear agreement. Uh, President Trump uh, undid that and felt that it was uh, it was not wise U.S. policy to be engaging with Iran that way. And uh, and here we are now, uh, you know, facing a military situation. I think nobody really wants uh, this to escalate. Uh, the the Iranians certainly don't seem like they would benefit at all from an escalation. And uh, the, and President Trump has been clear uh, from the 
earliest days of his campaign that he is not somebody who wants to follow in the footsteps of George W. Bush when it comes to that type of approach. So we find ourselves in a little bit of uncharted territory mm-hmm. here. Uh, but uh, this president has made clear uh, when he decides to take decisive action, uh, he is unafraid to do so. Yeah. Rob, I would appreciate if you could sort of paint a picture for the listeners, uh, the type of uh, person this the general was. I mean, he was certainly an enemy combatant. He was certainly was a terrorist. He certainly was leading a terrorist organization. Uh, but maybe you could uh, talk a little bit about what we know about him. I mean, was he a direct threat to Americans? Yeah, well, certainly, uh, yes, uh, he, he was. And I think we saw specifically uh, in, in recent days why that was the case. I mean, it was it was this, this incident uh, that resulted in this, you know, widespread and, and heavily covered um, uh, attack on the embassy that okay. I think focused a lot of attention uh, on the situation there. It's interesting, I, and I will tell you, your listeners in a moment a, a little bit about him. We have a great article in the Daily Signal, which goes into, into much greater detail. You know, uh, the, the criticism that we're hearing, I think, comes on the heels of just days earlier, I was hearing uh, reports in the media that, that President Trump wasn't doing enough. It's interesting that now that he takes decisive action, that uh, he gets criticized for, for going too far. So I think it's, again, I would caution your listeners to, uh, to to be skeptical about some of the voices they, they are hearing uh, in the media because there are those who simply don't like anything that President Trump will do, and uh, you could be with him one, one day and completely against him the next, uh, depending on what it is. So, yes, uh, he, he was a direct threat. Uh, he was responsible for the, the Revolutionary Guard, the, the proxy groups uh, that were responsible for the deaths of over 600 Americans uh, over the course of approximately eight years. Um, he he was considered a terrorist by the U.S. government. Uh, the, the threats were, were you know, consistently and uh, and routinely uh, being observed by uh, by this country. Um, the fact that he was in Iraq uh, deploying IEDs and uh, and those types of weapons that would uh, would would target our military and and other Iraqi civilians, I think, shows that he he certainly was. Uh, a threat today, and it was uh, within the president's uh, right and prerogative to take him out. Mm-hmm. I find it interesting that Iran was calling America terrorists, so they've turned the tables on that a little bit. Thought that was interesting. Well, Iran, if you if you remember, has a long history dating back to, frankly, uh, the, the late 1970s of engaging in in very uh, very much this type of behavior. Uh, the the problem is that the United States, through sanctions and other uh, economic uh, levers, has been able to uh, put Iran in a, in a pretty tough situation. And so uh, they have tried to find other ways uh, to strike at America, and I think that they're using some of their allies in the region in an attempt to do so. Uh, what you have in the situation that we, we find ourselves in today is Iran again blustering and making a lot more threats. We will see uh, what they ultimately do. I think what's, what's come clear uh, from the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense here in the United States is that the United States is going to be prepared to defend our interests, not only here at home, but in, in the region. And, uh, and I would expect that uh, there, there very well uh, you know, could be um, some, some repercussions. Uh, but at this point, uh, you know, Bill, um, it's, it's hard to say or predict what the Iranians' next move might be. Mm-hmm. What have we learned about the leadership of Iran through this episode, Rob? Well, I mean, uh, we have seen that there's a certain level of, of uh, 
uh, it's not unlike what we've talked about in the past, Bill, with North Korea. Mm -hmm. Iran seems to uh, thrive when it has the uh, media attention that it has today. Um, So much like Kim Jong-un likes to be in the spotlight, Iran likes to use this tough rhetoric uh, and uh, and harsh language toward the United States and Israel and others uh, who, who might be in the region aligned with our interests. Uh, to to try to bluster and and draw attention to itself. Uh, at the same time, we we do know that uh, that Russia and and China and other operators uh, that that are sometimes adversaries of the United States, um, you know, may have interests and 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 pushing Iran in that direction. So, we you know it, it's one of those things where uh, it is an unstable situation to a certain extent because we're not dealing with somebody who is willing to or or somebody that you'd even want to uh, sit down across the table and try to uh, you know have a conversation with i think that the uh, the failed nuclear deal demonstrated that there were significant flaws with trying that approach and so uh the the sanctions and other actions that this administration has taken, I think, have, have led us to the point where we are at today. And uh, and ultimately, um, you have a situation in Iraq where uh, there are there are forces there who are really conflicted. Uh, the Kurds, who generally want to seem stay out of it, uh, the Sunni minority, which of course uh, was in in power when Saddam Hussein was the the ruler of that country, uh, I think is probably generally pleased uh, with some of the developments. And then the Shias, where you have a a significant split, uh, you have some of those Shia militias that are aligned with Iran and others uh, who would prefer, uh, you know, to to move away from this type of violence. Rob Louis is my guest. He's the executive editor of the Daily Signal. Go to DailySignal.com. We're going to take a little break and we come back. I have a lot more questions for Rob about this. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Awful glad to have Rob Bluey as my guest. You know him as the executive editor over at the Daily Signal. Go to dailysignal.com. So, Rob, when I think about the uh, the way that Iran is saying that they are going to uh, seek revenge, can you imagine what some of the revenge scenarios might look like? Well, it's so hard to say, Bill. Um, you know, they, they have indicated that they have – I mean, they, they, President Trump and Iran have, have traded both very specific kind of targets uh, or, or numbers. Uh, I believe Iran said that they would hit 13 strategic sites or 11 strategic sites, and, and even the, the, the lowest on that list would do significant damage to the United States. Uh, there's been a lot of talk that some of it might not actually be a physical attack, but maybe a cyber attack. Okay. Uh, Iran has obviously engaged in that type of behavior before. Um, so whether that is attacking uh, U.S. interests or the U.S. government in some way, uh, that that could be uh, one of the things that they they attempt to do. Obviously, there are you know uh, U.S. military forces all over the world, so it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be a strike on the homeland here uh, in America, but it could be uh, at other uh, facilities, whether it's in the Middle East or, or other parts of the world. So I think everybody needs to be on their guard. We need to be aware that we, we do live in a time of heightened tension. Uh, but as the president said uh, just a short time ago, uh, the, the action that the United States took uh, hopefully will lead to a, a more safe and secure world, uh, because Soleimani certainly was somebody who had a reign of terror and uh, had future plans to, to take action against our country and, and others who believe in a free and democratic society. Mm-hmm. Your colleague Fred Lucas has been quite busy over at the Daily Signal. He's been writing some great stuff. 
question I have, and it refers to an article he wrote about the president's uh, obligation to notify Congress of this military strike. Well, it is interesting because uh, there are some critics, and this is, I think, what's driving some of the legislative action by uh, Speaker Pelosi this week. Uh, they are frustrated that President Trump is, is not engaging. This isn't the first time that they've voiced this type of criticism. Uh, at the same time, uh, Trump, uh, you know, has uh, just gone through an impeachment, which, uh, which he was very uh, critical of because he did not feel it was a fair process. Uh, he did not uh, have the ability to necessarily engage at the same level that previous presidents who faced a similar fate uh, were able to do so uh, in terms of defending himself. And so uh, at the same time, uh, I, I do think it's important to keep members of Congress uh, particularly those who are relevant committees, who have, who have oversight and jurisdiction over these issues, uh, well-informed. Um, and there, there, there's always a balance, though, Bill, because, um, you know, you have a situation where you sometimes need to take action quickly, and uh, you have a, moments to make a decision, and do you delay that and, and risk not getting your target because you want to go through a process of informing uh, certain members. So uh, the legal experts uh, that, that work here at the Heritage Foundation uh, have reviewed it, and they believe the president was correct in the action he took. And as a matter of uh, follow-up, this president, uh, of course, has, uh, has offered briefings uh, to members of Congress. And he's also interestingly said that let his tweets serve as notification that future uh, you know, attempts uh, uh, to attack the United States will be met with, uh, with, with a response. So I, I'm not sure, as, as one of the people quoted in Fred's article said, that the, the founders ever envisioned a system where, where Twitter wouldn't necessarily serve <laughs> as that notification, but this is the day we live in. Yeah. Would you give us an update on what's going on with the impeachment? Sure, yes. Well, we uh, still uh, face, find ourselves in a, in a bit of a standoff between the House and the Senate. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has still not transmitted the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Uh, the House actually needs to take another vote in which they will elect or confirm uh, the managers who will prosecute the trial in the Senate. So those will, of course, be the Democratic members of Congress who they select. Um, and that, uh, that has not taken place yet. That did not take place as it traditionally does immediately after passage of the, the impeachment articles uh, uh, before Christmas. Uh, there's some speculation that Pelosi could take that action this week, although it is unclear if she will ultimately do so. She's trying to use as much leverage as she thinks she has uh, to, to get Mitch McConnell to uh, you know, have rules that she thinks would be more favorable to, uh, I guess, leading to Trump's conviction, although it seems pretty unlikely that there would be uh, 20 Republicans who would, who would suddenly switch and, and vote to convict. So until uh, those articles are transmitted, I don't think you're likely to see any action on impeachment. And uh, McConnell has moved forward with uh, confirming more nominees. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, there's a long list of nominees awaiting a confirmation, both administrative positions and judicial nominees. And it seems that the, uh, the Senate is going to keep busy doing other things until uh, these articles of impeachment arrive. Mm -hmm. What is your take on the John Bolton uh, test, if he testifies? I don't think a prosecutor is going to bring somebody in unless they know exactly what he's going to say, right? That's a that's a very good point. Uh, I also think that there's a possibility that President Trump could exert executive privilege in this case, meaning that uh, that would block John Bolton from from testifying. Uh, there's also, you know, it's interesting. John Bolton has has said he will comply with a subpoena after giving this some thought. Uh, there's nothing stopping House Democrats from subpoenaing him, uh, which they would have more control over the process and obviously the forum in which he would appear. It uh, doesn't seem like they're too eager to do that either, uh, which I think goes to the heart of your 
your question. If you don't know what he's going to say, uh, how do you know he's going to necessarily say something that would be advantageous for, for one side or the other? Um, it seems to be a bit of a wild card at this point, but uh, if the rules that were adopted for President uh, Clinton's impeachment trial are adopted for President Trump's, basically what it would mean is that you would need 51 votes in order to, to do something like that. And I'm not quite sure at this point you have 51 Republican senators who uh, might necessarily approve of, of Bolton's uh, appearance as mm-hmm. a witness. Mm-hmm. I also want to let our listeners know over at the Daily, at DailySignal.com, there's a great interview that Rob had uh, with um, Secretary Robert Wilkie. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit, just to tease the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, we recently hosted uh, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Robert Wilkie, at, at the Heritage Foundation, and uh, as a follow up to that, we we of course like to interview our guests when they when they uh, you know make an, a speech at the Heritage Foundation. So this was an opportunity to chat with him about some of the priorities he has for the department. Uh, two of the big issues that he's confronting as the Secretary of Veterans Affairs are the opioid epidemic, which has uh, just ravaged so many American communities, and suicide. Uh, the two are linked in some ways, but obviously suicide has been an issue for for our veterans, uh, as Wilkie says in the interview, since the 1800s uh, when the uh, the military began tracking it. And unfortunately, we lose about 20 a day, Bill. It's uh, it's quite a shocking number uh, for me uh, when you put it in perspective. And the department, uh, you know, doesn't reach um, most of them. Uh, when when it, it does have a, a suicide prevention hotline, and it, it does its best that it can, uh, but obviously uh, that is uh, that's an issue that that's front and center uh, for for the secretary. The other issue that we talked about, uh, and uh, again, I encourage your your uh, listeners to go and read the the transcript or listen to the interview, is uh, that he wants to bring more choice uh, to healthcare options for veterans. And so, yes, there are VA facilities which he's aiming to improve, but he wants to give people who may not live close to a VA uh, hospital the opportunity to to choose other healthcare providers. And I think that that's really a a smart uh, and wise decision on his part, uh, because we know Americans like the the ability to choose and make their own decisions and pick their own doctors. That's one of the frustrations that people had with Obamacare. And so him moving in the opposite direction seems like a a benefit. Mm -hmm. Rob, we just have a minute left, but uh, Jared Stepman wrote a a good uh, article in the Daily Signal on the Golden Globes. Uh, Boy, Ricky Gervais was sure uh, direct, wasn't he? He, he certainly was. Yes, I, uh, I I very much enjoyed his opening monologue. I, I think it was a uh, something that hopefully many of those people in the audience at the Golden Globes uh, needed to hear. Whether or not they take it to heart is another another question. But uh, but for your listeners who didn't hear it, uh, it was it was an opportunity for him to really call out. Uh, some of their wokeness um, and uh, and their uh, lecturing us uh, on uh, on how to live our lives when in fact many of them uh, you know don't necessarily uh, live by the the morals or values that uh, that they that they preach to others and so uh, having Ricky Gervais uh, put that so front and center for the American people I think was was a helpful reminder uh, that uh, that sometimes Hollywood uh, for all the the glitz and glamour doesn't necessarily uh, reflect the true America it's uh, it's the people who are the those hardworking uh, Minnesotans and upstate New Yorkers and Virginians and, and others who uh, really uh, drive this country forward. Yeah, I don't think, Rob, you and I are necessarily celebrating the tone that Ricky used all the time because it was uh, rude and crude and some bad language. But 
uh, some of the points he made were just 100% spot on, weren't they? You are absolutely correct. Yes, no, there is. And, and if you watch the NBC version on YouTube, uh, they fortunately do censor it for, for the, the bad language, uh, the words. Right. But, uh, but yes, yeah, some of the other points I think needed to be said, and it was encouraging to have somebody say them uh, to that audience. Yeah, uh, Rob, thanks on so much for doing the show. Always great to talk to you and have a great rest of the week. Thank you. It's great to be back. You bet. Rob Blues. I'm awfully glad to be welcoming back to the program Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. He is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs, Professor of Bible and Theology, and Director of the Honors Program, something I've never been in. And he comes to us all the way from sunny Florida. Eric, welcome back to the show. Bill, it's always a great privilege to be with you, and I love that uh, we get a chance to really talk about God's Word together. Yeah, I love it. Now, you're cranking out another book. I know it's not going to come out until uh, sometime in 2020, but it's got quite a provocative title, if I may say so. Yeah, it's called Why Is That in the Bible? And it basically is going to cover all kinds of, of strange things that we find in Scripture, things that are perplexing, things that are odd, funny, controversial, weird, disgusting, a lot of those type of things that, that people just often have questions about. And um, it's supposed to be just kind of cross-section of about 40 different stories or verses mm-hmm. that are that are very intriguing, um, that I think are going to be really helpful for me and people to kind of read through and entertaining at that. You know, every time you come across something that is just so out there, you read it and you go, hmm, I'm just going to keep moving. I'm just going <laughs> yeah. to keep moving. Yeah, there's some things that are definitely not part of our culture that we have to, we, <laughs> right. we have to step into the world of the Bible to kind of understand why this is really even um, necessary you know, for us to understand why did God choose to do this? Why is this detail in the Scripture? Um, why is this doesn't even relate to me? How does it, how do I make some connection with this? So the kind of stories I want to be talking about are are things like the Nephilim, Balaam and his talking donkey, and Herod being eaten by worms in Acts 12. Of course, we've got Ananias and Sapphira and Solomon's polygamy. Uh, in Numbers 11, we've got quail coming out of people's nostrils. You know? <laughs> so, this is why I, mean, I read this the, and move on. I know. It's just really strange things that the Scriptures mention, and we're like, what? You know, even in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah has this acted-out prophecy where he goes and buys a pair of linen underwear and wears it for a long period of time, but he's not allowed to wash it. And it's supposed to be a, an illustration of of Israel's spirituality before God. It becomes nasty and, and, and disgusting, and that really is a display of the spiritual condition of God's people at the time. So there's a lot of things that the Bible talks about and, and, and speaks of that sounds really strange to us on the surface, but once you get into the world of the Bible, it really does make sense. Yeah, well, I'm really curious, Eric, because I love your writing, I love your work, and the way you think, so I would love to hear and, and let the listeners be teased by one of the, or two <laughs> okay. or three of the great stories that are coming out of the book. Well, sure. Well, uh, you know, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is Elisha, and um, he's the protege to Elijah, 
And Elijah was kind of the romantic prophet. I mean, the, the Jews looked at him, and they they had a, a real love affair, you might say, with Elijah in their historical past, just because he did all these miracles yeah. and, and things. And so Elijah was a, a hero. And of course, we know that that's the prophet who shows up with Jesus and, and Moses in the Sermon on the Mount as well. But his protege was Elisha. Are we going to and Second Elisha, Kings already? Yeah, Second Kings too oh, is fantastic. where we're going to go, and 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 and, and Elisha is is uh, the protege of Elijah, and he gets a double portion of his power, yes, because he, he saw him as he went up was as he saw Elijah go up to heaven, and and of course he he receives the cloak, he tests the cloak, he strikes the the brook uh, the the Jordan, and and he crosses over that, and he so he's got this amazing anointing by God to continue on with the prophetic ministry. And and so in one of these stories uh, with Elijah, we have an immediate first test of his power, and actually um, what I would call an immediate first threat, too. And there's this wonderful story that sends panic through any parent who hears it, and it's from Second uh, Kings 2, where Elisha is going up to Bethel, and as he's walking along the path, it says in, uh, in chapter 2, verses 23 or 24, that some small boys came out of the city and jeered at Elisha, saying, go up, baldy, go up, baldy, right? <laughs> A bald head or whatever you might call him. Um, he turns around, he looks at them, he curses them in the name of the Lord, and two female bears come out of the wood and mauls 42 of the children, okay? Now that taught him so, a lesson. And, and, and it's like, what is that? What is going on here? Uh, how is this really in keeping with what God would do to what, kids? You know, so what we have to do is we got to look at this a little bit deeper. And as we go into this, we'll see that the actual Hebrew word that we have translated into English as small boys is actually a little bit misleading because the, the word could actually go for males from any age 12 to age 30. So that kind of changes things a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Small small boys is not like eight or nine-year-old kids that are just doing little sing-song things like making fun of this bald-headed prophet. That's not what's going on here. Uh, So perhaps the better word to translate it would be young lads. And it would be, at this point, kind of a a gang of bandits that could be in their late teens or early 20s. They had no respect for this prophet. In fact, Elijah was going up to Bethel, which had been a place that was known for Baal worship. And so a, a lot of this threat that he could be experiencing from these young young males could actually be a threat to his very life. Uh, so his his safety is really um, a, an issue here. Hmm. And the idea of go up Baldhead, go up Baldhead, is not necessarily go up to Bethel, but go up to heaven just like your previous predecessor Elijah did. So they basically are shouting these words of contempt that he's he should be disappearing just like Elijah did. So it really changes the whole environment here. They wanted nothing to do with this prophet of Israel or the God that he represented. They're like hostile young men posing an imminent threat to now the lead prophet of Israel, and they want him out of their sight. And that kind of changes how we view the whole situation 
because Elisha sees it. He sees a threat. He knows the threat. He calls down the curse, and then God's instant judgment comes. Now, notice in the text, it doesn't say that Elisha uh, called the she-bears to come out and maul the kids. He just simply called a curse, and God was the one that brought forth the she-bears that came out and mauled the 42 of these guys. So um, that whole context and background is very important to get insight into what's really going on in this text. So, Eric, it doesn't really uh, change the way we understand this. It helps us understand it correctly for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope so. I mean, this is the goal in, in my in books that I write, and in this particular book that's coming out in August, is I, I really want to just give a fuller context uh, un, so that people can understand certain, certain things that on the surface just don't make a lot of sense, or at least seem strange that 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 would happen or that God would do such a thing. And one of the things that I've done in this book is I I do talk about the idea of God's judgment. And I think that this is something, Bill, that that we don't fully understand, because we read some of these passages in the Old Testament where God commanded, you know, the Israelites to go in and to wipe out uh, the Canaanites in the Promised Land and to, you know, just basically everything from men, women, children, animals, you know, put them to the band is what it was called. And they were actually instruments of God's judgment. Now, God had given the Canaanites plenty of opportunity to repent. They refused to repent. They were wholesale corrupt all through and through. And so God basically said, enough. And he uses Israel, his people to go in and to basically be his instrument of judgment. And I think that that's very difficult for us to understand because I think today we have failed to understand the measure of who God is as a holy God and that he has a right to execute judgment in his own way, in his own time, however he chooses. And I think we've lost a little bit of that understanding of God's holiness. And so where, therefore, when we see his judgment, his righteous and holy judgment come about, in the pages of Scripture, we're shocked by it. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's what makes us uncomfortable is because we just don't have that view of God, that big view of God as the holy and awesome God that Isaiah the prophet saw in Isaiah 6 when he saw him seated on the throne. And um, so I think that this is something we have to recover as Christians in the church. We need to understand who God is and his holiness and have a reverential fear for him. Yes, he is our friend. Yes, he is our brother. Yes, he is our savior. He is kind, compassionate, gracious, and loving. But at the same time, we have to see how much our sin is an affront to the holiness of God. So, Eric, I can honestly say I've never heard a preacher or a Bible teacher talk on this passage, and Rebecca's shaking her head the same. So I'm wondering uh, how something like this has gotten slipped through the cracks for so many decades in my life. The one about Elisha and the bear? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's just because we, we have to really dive in in a verse-by-verse approach to Scripture, and we have to see the fullest context of what was going on in Israel with regard to their worship of Baal mm-hmm. and how thoroughly pagan and corrupt Israel had become. And, and, and basically, Elijah and Elisha 
were almost like the last straws. God was sending them the last straws in there to help them. Of course, they were also discipling and training other prophets at the time. But, I mean, things were, were so bad in Israel at this point that this kind of threat to those who were trying to lead Israel back to revival was something that could not be afforded. And so God did actually call down justice to these young guys. And of course, it says small boys in your text, in your scripture. But again, I, I repeat, the Hebrew could be young lads, mm-hmm. and that could, be, that could be anyone from 12 to 30 years old. Um, and so we, we see these as, as a threat. This is like a, a small uh, a group or a gang of, of, of guys who are very hostile to one of the most important people in Israel's revival history. Elisha. And, um, and so God was going to protect his people. That's one of the lessons we get out of this, is that God has a way of protecting his people. He knows and he sees what we don't always see, and he'll find a way to protect us. Which is going to lead me into another story. If you want to take a break, I don't know, but if well, you I, want to load, I, I jump do. onto another story, I, I'm happy to. I do want to take a break in about a minute. But I I wish there would have been in the text, in verse 24, when it says, He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. I would have Mm. loved if I would have been able to then see what the words were that he used, what the curse sounded like. Yeah. That would have been interesting. And we don't have that. We don't have that. not, Not recorded for us. But again, the curse is not specific. Um, it just says, he says, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Of course, this is not inappropriate because the Bible talks about blessings and curses and that um, this is basically calling down judgment from God upon those who are threatening him. And then God was the one that actually enacted the female bears to come out of the woods to take care of that imminent threat. So, yeah, and so there he goes on to Mount Carmel and return to Samaria, as it says in the text. So basically threat eliminated um, by God. So God has a way of protecting his people and protecting his servants in ways that, that are, that's amazing to us. Mm-hmm. And then by not having the curse in the text <clears throat> probably prevents us from ever using it ourselves. Probably, yeah. <laughs> we would be tempted to go down paths we shouldn't. Yeah, a biblical curse. All right, let me take a little break. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. He's written uh, several books, Love That Rescues, The Most Misused Verses in the Bible, The Most Misused Stories in the Bible, and a new book coming out uh, next year called Why Is That in the Bible? We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to be speaking to my friend, Dr. Eric Bargerhoff. He is in Trinity, Florida, which always makes me a little jealous this time of year. He's written several books. The one we're chatting about today is called Why Is That in the Bible? And every time I look at that title, Eric, I'm never sure what word to emphasize, but it uh, works on many different levels. Yeah, we actually put the that in all caps to help us there. Why is that in the Bible? Because it's just like we can imagine ourselves pointing to a text and saying, why is that? Right. So, but uh, as we were went to, before we went to a break, we were talking about um, Elisha, the life of Elisha and how he was threatened by a group of bandits or a, a 
group, so to speak, of a hostile youth group yeah. that was after him because they were they were uh, worshippers of Baal, and of course he represents God, Yahweh, the the God of Israel, and they were threatening him, and he calls down a curse on them. And we talked a little bit about how God has a way of protecting his people in ways that marvel us. And there's another story of Elisha that's that's to that very point, and it's later in chapter 6. And, of course, we sing um, the song in church, the God of Angel Armies. And uh, I don't know if your church sings that, but uh, we have – We've sang that song. I think uh, Chris Tomlin may have sang that or, or whatever. You'll hear it on the radio. But we talk about the God of Angel Armies. Well, this is really one of the best stories, in my opinion, of the Old Testament, where uh, Elisha is is really helping the people of Israel uh, in the war that they're ongoingly have with the nations around them. And it just happens to be at this time in Second Kings 6 that they're fighting the Syrians, or also known as the Arameans. Um, so the Arameans had a, a, a habit of sending raiding parties into Israel, just kind of like, almost like terrorists, actually. And they would go and they would raid uh, various camps of Israel. And what would happen is that Elisha would warn the king of Israel where uh, the king of Aram was going to have a, a, a raiding party. And so he would warn them. So every time that the king of Aram would make a plan, um, Elisha would warn the king of Israel about the plan and tell him about it so that the Israelites could avoid being ambushed by their enemies. So basically the king of Aram finds out that every single time they make this plan, it's thwarted, and he's mad, he's furious. You know, the, the Aramean king is just furious, and he calls all of his servants in, together, and he says, all right, Tell me which one of you is the mole. <laughs> who, right. is leak, who is leaking our plans to the king of Israel? Yes. And who signed on the FISA warrant? <clears throat> yeah. She's like, what? Who's, who's, who's the leak? Who's the mole among us? Who's the traitor who's telling the king of Israel what's going on? And, of course, one of his servants says, no one is, God. No one is my lord. He says, it's Elisha the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel Words that you speak even in your own bedroom, that ought to, <laughs> that ought to, that ought to shake you up and scare you a little bit oh, yeah. right there. But um, so basically, I mean, what's going on is that Elisha is getting the word from God about what the enemy king is planning, and he's delivering prophetically this word from God to the king of Israel so they can avoid being um, ransacked. And, and ambushed. And so the king of Aram is fuming, like he's, he thinks he's got this traitor in his own camp, but but actually it's the Elisha prophet. And so what he decides to do is, is even more hilarious to me. So the king says in verse 13, go and see where he is so I can send men to capture him. And, and so they say, well, Elisha is in Dothan, and that's not in Alabama. So he sends horses chariots and a massive army at night to surround Elisha. And I think what's so hilarious about this is they're going to try to ambush and capture Elisha. But what in the world is this king thinking? Why is this Aramean king think that this new secret plan is one that Elisha is finally going to be caught by surprise about, right? <laughs> so it's like, why, why is it after, after all Elisha has already revealed yeah. regarding this king's plans to, to the Israelite king, why is it now that this Aramean 
enemy king thinks that he's going to have a new secret plan that's going to catch Elisha off guard. So, well, they in the in the in the meantime, they go ahead and enact their plan. They surround um they surround the place where Elisha and his servant are staying in the middle of the night. They wake up in the morning. The servant of the, of, of Elisha goes out and sees that they are surrounded by the the Aramean army and he panics. My master, what are we going to do? And and Elisha's sitting there and he's like cool as a cucumber, right? I mean, he's he's just he's he's not panicked at all. And and his servant's like, what what's going on here? The servant's in a panic. And Elisha finally says, don't be afraid, for those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And of course, this servant is like completely confused. What do you mean there's more of us than them? I mean, there's a whole army out there. And then Elisha prays and asks the Lord to open his servant's eyes so he can see. And so the Lord opens the servant's eyes and he sees all around the mountains chariots of fire that are surrounding Elisha. It was covered with horses and chariots of fire. And basically we have the angel armies of the Lord that are there protecting Elisha and his servant from ambush by these enemy um, soldiers. So the long story short, you know, God um, answers Elisha's prayers. He strikes the nation with blindness. He leads them out of the area where they are and leads them right into uh, Samaria where the Israelites basically have them surrounded and, um, you know, they're not allowed to kill them. Elisha doesn't allow them to kill them. And um, basically they throw a feast for them, send them off. And then from then on, the enemy raiders don't come into Israel's land again. I mean, they basically have been scorched. They, they, they've been had, and they realize that they were at the mercy of the Israelites. And so they stopped their planning. They kind of, in other words, stopped going after uh, Elisha. And this story is wonderful because it teaches us some really great things. Number one is this. God is always sovereignly in control of everything that pertains to our lives, and we have to trust him no matter what. Uh, secondly, prayer. Prayer is the thing that, that Elisha did that enabled the servants of Elisha to see things from God's perspective. And I think prayer is the thing that we need to make sure we are committed to as believers so that we can get a better view of God's perspective about the situations that we find ourselves in. Because it opens our eyes to see where God is at work and so that we can see more of the spiritual side of things. You know, C.S. Lewis said, prayer doesn't change God, prayer changes me. And and that is definitely true. It gets us on board with God's agenda to see things more from his perspective. And so this story, why is that in the Bible? This is there to show us that there is a world outside of the world that we see. This, there's another dimension to life that we don't always see where God is always, always at work. I am so impressed uh, how cool and confident uh, Elisha is because this is a, a characteristic that we could all use a little bit more of nowadays. He has, he, he, you know why I think he has that, though? I think it's because he knows who his God is. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the more that we as Christians 
know who our God is. By studying God's Word, we get a picture of who He is. The more confidence we have in dealing with everything that we deal with in life. No matter what the doctors say is the diagnosis for our sickness, no matter uh, how much money we do or don't have coming in each month, no matter who uh, betrays us in a relationship, no matter what our struggles and challenges of life are, if we understand that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God loves me, and he's got a plan for my life, then we can have a a reassurance and a peace and a confidence that is a supernatural kind of peace. Again, Paul says it's the peace that passes all understanding. Mm -hmm. And what I love about you and your teaching and this book that's coming out next year is just hearing you talk about it, I feel like I've learned so much more than if I just would have picked it up and read it myself. But again, I'm just reminded how powerful teaching is and what a great teacher you are. Well, thank you, Brother Bill. It's just yeah. an honor. I, I, I just you know, I, I just read and study and I enjoy it and I learn from others. I love to listen to other insights from other people. But it's important for us to be surrounded by uh, quality teachers that are going to train us up in the Lord. And I mean, that's the job of a pastor, right, to equip God's people for the ministry. And we do that when we equip them with the eternal, inerrant Word of God. That's indeed so true, and I appreciate the giftedness that you share with others, because God has given you that gift, and you use it well for His glory and His kingdom. Well, amen to that. Yeah. Give me the glory. Thank yeah. you, Beryl. Yeah, and just uh, wanting to um, thank you for coming on to the show, and I, I promise I want to be on the on the top 100 people that you uh, allowed to interview when the book finally hits the, the market. Uh, my privilege. I enjoy you and your show and your listeners as well. Um, blessings to you, my friend. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff has been my guest in the book called Why Is That in the Bible? All right, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com. 